Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Monday morning, the 3rd of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Peter Tobin had been a member of Sinn Féin for 20 years. Last month, he left the party to become an independent TD for Mead West. It followed his second suspension from Sinn Féin over his pro-life stance, voting against the party's policy. First elected to the Dáil in 2011, Tobin intends running in the next election and while his days with Sinn Féin are behind him, he hopes to be a member of a political party, a new political party. Peter Tobin has held a series of meetings around the country where he's been discussing this prospect. The party he wants to form would be an all-island party, a left-wing party seeking social justice, focusing on health and housing and promoting the right to life. Uh, This evening he'll be hosting one of his meetings in Navan and joins us on on the phone now. Good morning to you, Patrick Tobin, and thanks for joining us. Uh, who are you inviting to this meeting this evening? Well, we're inviting anybody who doesn't have a voice in Leinster House, people who feel that, um, that they have a particular objective with regard to how Ireland should develop, but that none of the parties uh, currently represent that particular view. So in other words, there would be, a, I suppose, a, all the political parties are seeking to inhabit exactly the same space and time on a large range of issues. There's a groupthink developing in, in Leinster House at the moment, and we aim to break that groupthink in the future. Uh, about 700 people have contacted us so far from uh, the whole 32 counties. We have six rep, uh, elected representatives uh, who have joined us uh, from uh, around the country, and it actually puts us at about three elected reps behind the Social Democrats, and they're on the go for three years, and we're on the go for two weeks. So there's, there's serious momentum with regards to this. Uh, we're talking to about 22 other elected reps from a number of different political backgrounds at the moment. Um, and the meetings that we've had have been jammed. They've been standing room only meetings. And what's very, very apparent is there's a serious frustration amongst so many people. People have said that, the, that there, there is no space for uh, respectful opposition in this country currently on a range of issues. And my view would be that 
The respectful opposition is not the enemy. Indeed, it's a really important part of a functioning democracy. Because if you don't give people a voice uh, in Leinster House, you push them to the margins. And if people are on the margins, they will start to vote for people on the margins. And we see that happening in the United States uh, and in Britain as well. So it's important that, you know, that the doll simply reflects the views that exist outside of the doll in roughly the same por- uh, proportions uh, uh, inside as well. And can you tell us who the six elected members are that have joined your party to be? Yeah, Ida Cusson from Kildare is a councillor. Um, Ger Kyohan from Cove, another councillor. Seamus Morris from Tipperary, another councillor. And Jerry Ginty from Mayo is another councillor. Uh, and we have another councillor on the way from the West Coast. He just has to discuss it with his family and uh, his his comments mm-hmm. there. But we have also people to the calibre of Declan McGuinness from Derry, um, Francie Brawley, who's a former Sinn Féin MLA from Derry as well, Dr Anne McCluskey, who ran in Stormont in 2016 and just narrowly missed out on the last seat um, there. So um, we're, we're, the, the, the thing that has surprised mm-hmm. me the most about this, Michael, has been we have big interest amongst uh, the Sinn Féin side of, of, of the uh, political spectrum and also some from the Labour side of the spectrum. But the people who are coming to us nearly the most are Fianna Fáilers, um, both uh, members, councillors and people who are you know, uh, within the management of their local organisations. The frustration in that organisation is incredible. They feel that Micheál Martin is, has taken the party away from their core values. And, they and they're the people you're clearly reaching out to. Uh, but of the people that you've mentioned already, I, I take it uh, that those from the north of Ireland, like Francie Brawley, are frustrated uh, Sinn Féin pro-lifers. Well, I would say, first of all, that the, the majority of people who are coming to us would have either uh, voted no in the last referendum, but some people who are coming to us voted yes in the referendum, but feel that the, this particular legislation goes too far. So in the, in the meeting that we had in Tralee a number, uh, about a week ago, uh, many of the people there were yes voters, but are shocked mm. with regard to the extreme legislation that's in front uh, of Leinster, ha- Leinster House currently. In the north of Ireland, I'm also talking to people from an SDLP background as well. Okay. Uh, and people, a lot of people from an independent background who feel that this is an opportunity. See, in this country, we have had Fianna Fáil, mm. Fine Gael, Sinn Féin and Labour for generations. And some might say it's very hard, if nearly impossible, to set up a new political party. But I, I would ask the question, are we saying then that we are prisoners of those four political parties forever? Or are we saying that in actual fact, you know, like-minded people can set up an activist, uh, grassroots organization in an effort to see can we build something new in this country. And for us not familiar with uh, the names of the councillors uh, that you listed, uh, there are they independent councillors or have been independent councillors? Uh, two, two of them were, um, they're, they're all from, I suppose, a Sinn Féin stock originally, and, but about three of them have been operating as independent councillors for the last number of years. So for particular reasons have left uh, Sinn Féin over the last number of years. But Ida Cousin was a Sinn Féin councillor up until about uh, two weeks ago. Okay, and what's the difference, uh, apart from uh, your stance on abortion, between what you're proposing and Sinn Féin? Well, first of all, you know, we want to see the unity of the Irish people, and we believe we probably have a better chance of achieving that uh, with regards to people from the other community in the north of Ireland. So right now, Anne Brawley and Dr. Anne McCluskey are working with people from the Protestant community in the north of Ireland on a range of different issues, and we want to be able to... be a 1798 Republican organization, so one that 
is welcoming to Catholic, Protestants and the centre, a pluralist organisation that's not just particularly from one uh, particular end of the community. We are a left-wing organisation, as you, you mentioned there mm. earlier. We want to see proper investment in health, housing and education. But unlike other left-wing parties, we really want to tackle the maladministration that's happening in the likes of the HSC. Because from, from my understanding, there's hundreds of millions of euros that are not getting to frontline services due to the fact of maladministration uh, in, in, in the HSE as well. With regards to enterprise, in, unlike probably other left-wing organizations, we want to see really healthy local indigenous small to medium-sized businesses. Many of those businesses are, are getting stuffed, uh, and we see it around the towns, uh, right around the country. And the, We welcome foreign direct investment, but foreign direct investment shouldn't be given all the advantages over um, indigenous business. Because indigenous business is actually more economically sustainable. When foreign direct investment want to go, they just pick up and, and, and go, and that causes great difficulty. But local businesses are far more invested in the local community and therefore uh, are far stickier with regards to their ability to, to last uh, in, a, in a particular country. Uh, we want to obviously make sure that there's a, a proper justice system. Uh, right now, we have a major difficulty with regards lack of guard reform and anybody who saw the Morris McCabe um, show on RTE a couple of weeks ago will see that there are still major difficulties within the police force. We, we're also a Euro-critical party. In other words, we believe that all of the political parties have gone to the centre with regards to the European Union. And while the European Union uh, can be a force for good, right now there are serious threats coming down the line such as a European army and um, such as uh, European federalism, and I don't believe the other political parties are really articulating people's fears and worries uh, around this growing European uh, superstate in the future. So we want to put right. down a line with regard Sinn to Sinn Féin certainly has been making those points, and uh, I feel I must ask you the same question again to repeat uh, the question. What is the difference between the political party that you're proposing to form and Sinn Féin? Well, see, first of all, the, when you set up a political party, you don't set it up in that you're 100% different from all the other political parties. There will always be elements of our political platform that are shared by other political organizations. First of all, though, we want to change the way elected politics happens in this country. So, for example, we have a major difficulty in Leinster House currently. People talk about political reform. But we want to see the political reform of the, of the political parties. So, for example, the, the ministers are getting captured by their departments. We also see TDs who are more interested in keeping their eye on the, the, the leader of their party for brownie points and another eye on keeping their seats safe. And they've no eyes left for the constituents that they're meant to represent. There has to be a change in, with TDs. They can't all be expected just to read from briefing documents and not be allowed to think for themselves. We want to create a situation where TDs are not clones and actually challenge both the status quo in the, uh, in the political system and be able to challenge their own political parties. Because I'll tell you this. So little or no difference then, just no, to go just, back to the question that I did put to you twice, the is answer is little or no difference. Start, uh, with regards to the, the political culture. Because groupthink is extremely dangerous in Ireland. We, and, and exists in Sinn Féin, does it? Well, I would say that because of the, the tight whip in all of the political parties, because of the centralised management of all of the political parties... When were you told what way to think in Sinn Féin, apart from the abortion issue? Well, first 
first of all, um, Michael, I'm not going to spend my time well, talking about my history within shipping. Well, and then, the it's very, well then it's very hard to accept the answer that well, you're not, giving actually, us. Because I, I have come from Sinn Féin for 21 years. I have worked hard in Sinn Féin to try and create space for different voices and views within Sinn Féin. But there are many good people within Sinn Féin. There are many good elected representatives in Sinn Féin. And I'm not going to define myself around bashing Sinn Féin. I want to see them get on about the, the work that they're getting on with. But I also want to develop an organization with a different political culture. There's many and people... you can't tell me, though, Michael, in fairness, that the political culture that I've espoused here is not radically different than the political culture within the other political parties. There's many people who would define Sinn Féin as an apologist group for the IRA's armed campaign. Uh, will you allow people to join your political party and denounce that campaign? Well, first of all, I want to say that um, I joined uh, Sinn Féin in 1997, about four years after the ceasefires. Um, the second thing, the reason I joined Sinn Féin was because I believed that the context of the difficulties in the north of Ireland were based upon the fact that Catholics didn't have an equal right to vote, they didn't have an equal right to uh, housing or jobs. When they went on the streets, they were beaten off the streets and shot dead off the streets by the state. But you believe the armed campaign was legitimate, don't you? I want to answer your question, but I want to answer fully, Michael. I do, honestly. Uh, And then when they started to to try to politically organise, they were censored off the television. I believed that it was important that that people could be able to fix the injustices that they experienced democratically and peacefully. And thankfully, the Good Friday Agreement allowed for that. Now, anybody joining my organization will not be whipped with regards their analysis of what happened in the north of Ireland. There's no doubt about that. I'm not going to say that any future organization will only be determined what your view in the past is. Because if we're going to say that your future development is as a country, as a political party, yes. it will be defined only by your views on the past. Okay, but, but we, still, going to, we have current issues. We have current issues relating to the past, uh, as uh, people will know from uh, the very recent news reports uh, about uh, an extradition warrant uh, which is being contested. So, so uh, I mean, it is still relevant to today's conversation. Of course uh, it is. Well, uh, of course, are you saying that you will allow people to join this army, that they'll be, or that this party, that's a Freudian slip, obviously, but that they'd be allowed to uh, join your party uh, if they believe uh, that uh, the IRA is a terrorist or was a terrorist organisation rather than a legitimate army? First of all, I just have to say that uh, we're definitely not an army. There's no yeah, doubt about well, no, okay. that. As I say, a Freudian slip. I understand. Yes, uh, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what I'm saying to you is, is very clearly this. I have my particular analysis over what happened in the past. And many of the people who will join this organiz- organization will have a similar analysis. But there will be people out there who will see that they need to get involved in this particular political vehicle in order to achieve Irish unity, in order to achieve proper health services uh, and proper, you know, there's 100,000 people at the moment who are working, who are in poverty, in order to uh, ensure that people who are working get out of poverty. And I am not going to dictate to them what their analysis of the past should be. Logic would, like, if, if, if you're going to hamstring your future purely by your analysis of the past, well, then there's no way that this country can move on in any way, not even a political organization. So, and, and that's very, very clear. Okay. People are welcome to this organization, whatever their analysis of the past would be. But I've no doubt you'll probably find that most people who join will have either the same analysis or a similar analysis. You, you haven't got a, a commitment from Carol Nolan yet, I, I take it? 
I've, I have. I'm working very closely with Carol Nolan and uh, a number of other TDs, actually, mm. with regards and uh, the future on this, and not just at a rockless level as well, but at every level of Irish politics. I'm engaging with elected reps, about 22 people currently. And, you know, what has struck me the most about this is the number of Fianna Fáil elected reps who are talking to me about their own future. Now, many people listening to this will feel, yes, this particular vehicle that Pather's talking about actually probably represents my views uh, more than my own organisation. But many people will feel that they have spent, you know, 10 or 15 years with deep friendships and, mm. and comradeships with individuals in their own political organizations. What I'll say to them is, yes, friendships are important, comradeship is important, but when a political vehicle is going in a different direction than yourself and you're on it, you have to ask yourself the question, what are you doing on that vehicle? A couple of years ago, I asked myself, would I ask my son uh, to join Sinn Féin? And I, the answer to that was, I wouldn't ask uh, my son to join Sinn Féin. And then I said to myself, well, what am I doing collecting votes for an organization that I wouldn't ask my son to join? And I think, you know, a lot of people out there who are in political organizations, they find that those political organizations are no longer representing their particular views. Okay. And logic would dictate that you align yourself and your energies to the objectives. We have to be loyal to our objectives. Loyal, loyalty to organizations which change direction is not good enough. All right, loyalty well, to the objectives is the most important thing. And that's why I'd ask people to come to the New Grange tonight yeah. at 8 p.m. Um, to discuss a, a, what I believe is a landmark political meeting. Okay. Uh, New Grange, 8 p.m. Uh, and what you've been talking about is obviously feeding the aspiration to form this political party. Uh, you need 300 members, uh, I think, in order to be able to do it. Uh, are, are you close to that? Or when do you expect to we'll, we'll, get to that type as of... As I said, 700 people have already stated mm. Uh, that they're, go- they're, go- they're going to get involved. Uh, we have the contact details and the sign-ups of 700 people. And that's just at the start of this, I suppose, tour of the country. Have you a name for the party as yet? We're, no, we're, we're right now, uh, in this, we have got information from SIPO, the Standards and Public mm-hmm. Office, and we're looking to, I suppose, make sure that we uh, adhere to all of the, the requirements that are necessary from the Standards of Public Office. And in the north of Ireland, we're dealing with the authorities there in order to have this organisation registered. I have no doubt that this organisation will be registered uh, by mid-January, uh, and I have, I have no doubt you know, by mid-January that that number of 700 will have doubled. And you'll be fielding um, candidates every, then. Every, the, every meeting we go to, yeah. we have at least 100 people signing up. And will you be the leader of this party? I'm not going to, to uh, even jump that far yet. Okay. We, ha- we have a group of about 40 people now as an Ord Corley yeah. that come together once a month to to organise the development of uh, the organisation and, you know, work on organisational development, policy development as well. Mm. And it will be premature to identify who will be the leader of this party. Well, I think there'll be some interest, uh, at least uh, in uh, relation to who will be attending the Newgrange uh, tonight. Uh, We'll leave there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us here this morning. Uh, That's Independent TD for Mead West, Padder Tobin. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now, Fianna Fáil is calling on uh, the government uh, to make money available to local authorities uh, to bring vacant units into use and to make housing available to the 10,000 people or thereabouts who are homeless in this country. We're joined by local TD Declan Bronick and uh, you've made this point uh, in relation to Louth County Council, which has one of the best records in the country in terms of bringing these so-called voids back into use. Um, absolutely, Michael. I have a very simple philosophy in relation to voids, and for your listeners, voids are a 
stock of housing that you know needs some form of refurbishment and is not allocated to a particular individual. So my philosophy is simply voids should be avoidable, not unavoidable. Uh, from a state's point of view, it is accepted that about 1% uh, of property in, in any local authority will uh, have a period in which mm. refurbishment has to take place, maybe as a result of somebody leaving the property and renewing it to make it available for, for the next person. But in the case of Louth, even though we're lauded, as you've said, in relation to mm. our compulsory purchase orders and our compulsory purchase orders on, 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 on derelict properties, and we are way above any other local authority, the reality is that the department are not taking into account the availability of money that is going, for example, to repair those CPOs that the local authority has purchased and giving us additional money that is required. In the case, just just by way of example, in the case of Loud, there are 91 vacant properties and that represents about somewhere of the order of 2.33 voids. And you've heard me say earlier, the, 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 the acceptable is about 1% of all, all of the properties. In in Loud, for the first time ever, I have looked at the figures and Loud County Council, in their care, have about 4,058 properties. We have, for the first time, exceeded the number of people who, when you combine those who are in HAP housing and those who are on the waiting list, the figure of those exceeds for the first time the number of housing stock. So we have moved, as your listeners all know, into housing agencies and and and, and um, housing bodies providing, if you like, the necessary housing. But in the case, Michael, of Loud, the reason uh, that I've been calling for additional monies for the repair of housing mm. is that Loud Local Authority has in excess of a bill of 1.7 million every year in which they have to find out their own resources uh, to service lands that were bought in the boom times at, 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 mm-hmm. you know, at exceptional uh, figures. That That is costing the county council about a million out of its own pocket. In addition to that, uh, while the, the state does provide some money towards homeless services, the reality is that loud the Louds budget has to take in about a further 460000 And then uh, what used to be called the Disabled Persons Grant, now called grants to private households, uh, the local authority has to come up with about 300000 to uh, actually match the money that is provided by the government. Yeah. So in, in reality, my friend, just if I could finish, yeah. in, re- in, in reality here, while there is no question that the government are increasing the funding, uh, towards building, which we hope to deliver something of the order of 740 uh, in, in building uh, 2020 or 20, building 2040 over the next number of years here, here in Louth. Mm. But if you're caged into a situation where you don't have within the repair budget money to, to do them, it makes absolutely no sense to have but do, do you need to do, do, do you need to repair something if, it, if it's not broken? Uh, do you worry that sometimes common sense is lacking yes. in terms of how these properties are, are dealt with? I mean, you can't release the property to a, a new tenant after one moves out until the paperwork is completed. Uh, and the paperwork can't be completed until X amount of jobs are done. But sometimes those jobs don't need to be done. Uh, and perhaps local authorities are, let's say, going in and painting houses that are perfectly fine. 
Well, I fully agree with you, Michael, on this. And uh, common sense should prevail. But unfortunately, uh, the reality is that we live in a world of insurance-itis. And, uh, but that's not insurance-itis. That's just no, common no, sense. And it's also it's also willy-nilly spending. I mean, I think we'll probably be talking about the Rose Garden, which shocked me beyond belief last week. Uh, we were told it cost €35,000 to put a, a few flowers in a, a bed in Dominic's Park in Drogheda. We've got on to the council. Uh, they've said it's 19000 We're trying to find out why on earth it would be 19000 We think it's absolutely beautiful, a wonderful thing to do, but surely shouldn't have cost more than a couple of thousand. Is public money spent without any regard for value for money? Uh, yes, but but you've moved from talking about... Oh, I know, I know. If you let me explain, you've asked me, do I believe mm. that there is a waste of money in, in public housing, in public housing and social housing? And I've said it is to do with insurance agents. So I want to elaborate on this, Michael. When I went to the local authority in 1991, mm. You know, I had people ringing me in brand new houses who wanted their taps repaired, who wanted to leak you know, in a water system. And I have to say, my response would be, well, in a private house, I would do that myself, or you should be at the capability of getting a plumber to do it. Mm. The reality is that a property within local authority, or indeed within a housing agency, cannot be given to somebody until it is fully ex- inspected to the degree that somebody doesn't uh, tear themselves on the edge of timber or whatever it may be. So that's the reality mm. that, that unfortunately when I talk about insurance aid, but if you're looking for a solution, yes, I believe, I believe firmly that when houses become available that need some money spent on them, mm. it, it varies, it varies in terms of... Yeah, but then of, people uh, are left living in houses... My, my, but I mean, we heard, I'm sorry to cut across you, but people are left, uh, it's so ridiculous, people are left living in houses that are just unfit for purpose. We heard from a woman not so long ago where her ceiling or was falling in uh, because of a, a leak that had been left unrepaired and from other people who have no heating because the heating has broke down and the council can't afford to fix it. And that, that is symptomatic of the problem we're trying to discuss, that the local authority have large numbers of people and growing numbers waiting on repairs because they haven't got the money to do the ongoing repairs. But that is also part of the same budget. So what I'm saying here is there has to be, you said about practicality, mm. I believe that there are plenty of people where plenty of houses become vacant and available who would be prepared to sign off to actually do some of the repairs themselves. Now, that may not be the final solution, but mm. I do believe that there are practical steps that can be taken where people will sign off on a responsibility where an inspection of the house takes place. Where in often cases, uh, some of the people who would occupy the houses have maybe their partner is, is a carpenter or an electrician uh, who would be only too willing to do it. Mm. But then you get back into the whole issue of the quality and standard and the local authority get locked into that whole quagmire, as you said, of you know, paperwork, paperwork, mm. and more paperwork. Bottom line here is, Loud County Council have been lauded for, for bringing over 80 CPOs, houses back in, into use. It doesn't make sense to be, if it's quicker to bring the 91 that I've referred to that are vacant in a shorter space of time than building an additional 91. Now, while I want to see an additional building of the 740 that I talked about, there should be a flexibility within the local authority. And I have no doubt Loud County Council can deliver. The Minister, when I spoke on this on a topical issue last week, acknowledged, firstly, the great work that Loud County Council are doing and, and way ahead of the posse in terms of that in the country. He also, uh, and Loud County Council, I should say, in my discussions with him in relation to this issue, have said that they have a great rapport with the Department of the Environment and Housing. 
But people need to be able to see that the council's budget for maintenance and repair and indeed uh, in order to bring a house back into a reletting situation, that their budget is reduced by over 1.7 million. Therefore, they're not able to carry out to bring those 91 back into use, mm. which to me is nothing short of a disgrace. Okay, I have to leave it there, but thank you indeed for joining us as always. Fianna Fáil, TD for Louth, Declan Brannock. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you've been hearing this morning, AA Ireland wants uh, the Gardaí to be given more resources to police the roads over the Christmas period. This follows a survey by AA Car Insurance of almost 4,000 Irish motorists on drink driving. And we're joined by Conor Faulkner, who's uh, the Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland. And I I think the starting point, Conor, is the good news, which is that the vast majority of people never drink and drive. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that's a nice way to put it, Mike, because often the eye is attracted to what looks like the bad news. But you're right. So if we're talking about, you know, 95% compliance and more, uh, most people would regard that as good. But we do have a problem, and there's no point mm. pretending we don't. Well, one drink driver is a risk to us all. Well, exactly, yes. Now, I, I would like, in trying to be optimistic, I mean, I, I would like to reflect on things that, you know, I think even if you have that individual taking an occasional risk with drink driving, uh, they're, they're, they're terrified about doing it, they're trying to get home safe, and when they get home safe, they, in relief, say, my God, I'm glad I got away with that, I'm not trying that again. Whereas previously, you had people who, who would drink and drive with impunity four or five days a week and just not give a damn. So I do believe it's a great deal better than it used to be. But I think if you look at data like this, there's no point pretending it's different. We have to be honest about it. And I think what it tells us is a couple of things. Firstly, we still haven't solved the problem with respect to rural Ireland. People are, are left with virtually no public transport choice. And, and no matter what you wish, mm. if you have that situation, inevitably you're going to have more drinking and driving. And the other thing is that you, you cannot cry wolf with enforcement. There is just no point or very little point in having an, an announcement from, from Shane Ross and, and uh, you know, a photo call with a Garda van uh, and a piece in the papers uh, on Monday mm. if people know that, you know, you're just not going to see a guard if you happen to be out and about. Uh, and we, we still haven't invested properly in that. I mean, they are improving investment in the last couple of years. I'll have to give credit. There is some more Garda recruitment going on. But everybody listens, listening to us right now, Michael, knows that if you were a drinking and a drink driver depressingly your odds are quite good mm. in terms of in terms well, of the likelihood of you being caught if the same individuals wouldn't dream of trying it in britain wouldn't dream of trying it in france or germany because they'd be you know they, they'd certainly feel they're highly likely to be caught and they'd be terrified of the consequences uh, but they'll do it out the road from drada mm. and what's the essential difference there it it, it is the absence of Gardaí. Uh, it's an old low-tech solution, but we haven't found a better one yet. In force, through the presence of flashing blue lights on the road, and you will get behaviour changes. And Don't random tests. You won't. Well, we do have random tests, Michael, but mm. again, you know, it, 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 it is the frequency with them, and, and not only the frequency, but when and where they're being done. Like, mm. we've also asked people, when was the last time you were stopped by a guard? And, and, mm. and people are stopped by guards with reasonable regularity, but what, in a sense... What is the point in me coming across a guy at the checkpoint and being breath tested at three o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon? That's just not when 
the danger is occurring. Mm. Now, if I came across that same checkpoint at 2 o'clock in the morning outside a Dublin nightclub, that's a much, much more useful um, deployment of Garda resources. And that sort of thing simply doesn't happen Mm. enough. So I I think in absolute terms, we don't have enough enforcement. And then in terms of how we make use of the assets we have, there's a tendency, unfortunately, um, to do the relatively easy thing, um, you know, stick Mm. a guard a speed checkpoint up on the M1 or or on one of the slip roads off it at a busy time. Hundreds of cars will see you. You'll be able to issue a couple of penalty points uh, and you're done. But have have you actually improved road safety? I'd much rather see you in the car park of the pub at midnight. All right. Well, two questions for you. Uh, one, are the levels right? And two, do you think people believe that the levels are too low? Because I've heard you talking in the past uh, about speed limits. And uh, if yeah. people think uh, the limit is wrong, well, then they'll ignore the law. In other words, uh, there's no point in setting a speed limit of 50 kilometres on the M1 motorway. People will go much faster than that, regardless of what the signs say. Uh, if people believe uh, that uh, the uh, alcohol levels are too low, perhaps it's the same thing, is it? Well, maybe. I, I think that's a reasonable observation. Uh, the data that we're looking at today do- doesn't prove that one way or the other, Michael, but mm. I think it's a reasonable observation. But uh, the, the limit is 50, which is the same limit all around Europe. Um, so I, I don't think there's much debate about that these days. The Brits are an exception, but, you know, they seem happy to be an exception in lots of things. <laughs> For the rest of the modern world, it's 50. Uh, now, there is an abundance of data, and anybody who thinks it's a racket and thinks that, you know, it's all a government scam and all that, just Google it. You've got access to Google. Look for the research on, on, on accident risk correlated with alcohol from 50 milligrams and up. It's overwhelmingly there. You just, I, 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 I simply can't entertain people who are arguing that it's not true. It's, about, it's like arguing with a climate change denier, right, you know. Mm. Go go and Google it yourself. The information is all there. So I, I don't personally believe that the level is set at, at the wrong uh, mm-hmm. amount. I, I think the level is reasonable enough. But I do think you're probably right in that there are people who say, um, I, you know, I'll chance it with the second pint. I, I'm probably over that level, but sure, I know I'm all right myself. And I'm also fairly certain that I'm not going to meet a guard, mm. so I'll risk it. Whereas that same individual, perhaps 15 or 20 years ago, would have cheerfully drunk home with four or five pints on him and would have done that three or four days a week. And the guards so released better. the guards released some very interesting data last week about how thousands of people met a guard the morning after. Mm. Uh, what What are your thoughts on checkpoints uh, the morning after? Uh, would you prefer to see the guards outside nightclubs at two o'clock when yeah. people have had a few pints or the next morning at seven or eight o'clock in the morning when perhaps they've had six, seven, eight hours sleep and may just be over the limit uh, but felt that they were okay. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I understand, and I, I would agree completely with the point you make. I, I would much, much, much rather see the Gardaí outside the nightclub. Uh, I, I think, you know, firstly, to say to drivers, it, unfortunately, this is true. If you have that horrible hungover feeling in the morning, um, it, it almost certainly means you're still above the alcohol limit, and the punishment is the same no matter what time of day. So you might feel you've done the virtuous thing by taking the taxi home at 3 o'clock, but if you're behind the wheel of the car four hours later, uh, you're still over the limit. And, you know, a cup of coffee and a rasher sandwich isn't going to change that. You're above the limit. But realistically, though, we want to target the behaviours that are killing people. And deaths and injuries are occurring in the small hours of the morning. And your enforcement should be concentrated on the areas that are and the times of the day that are dangerous, 
not on the times of the day when you're more likely to meet people and catch them. So the very same with speed enforcement. I mean, if if you concentrated your speed enforcement on the M1 motorway between you up there and me down here in Dublin, um, great volumes, you'd probably get a fair few people at 125 kph. You could probably hand out loads of penalty points. But that's not where people are being hurt. They're being hurt on the secondary roads. They're being hurt on, on badly designed roads that are dark in winter. And that's where your guard should be. And, and, and I, I certainly wouldn't say never enforce in the morning. I think that would be a false policy. But overwhelmingly, your concentration of effort should be in the dangerous times. Not, not the times when you, you can, you know, be seen by lots of people and meet lots of motorists. Your priority is to do it. Uh, concentrate on the areas of danger and I would much rather see the Gardaí doing that. Okay, well I, I suppose there's the law, uh, there's the guards who enforce it and there's the rest of us who drive motor cars and the personal responsibility that we all hope to have and we don't drive on footpaths. Uh, you said to Google the research into what drinking and driving can do and perhaps people will do that because it is literally uh, a matter of life and death and that's a, a decision that everybody has to make and perhaps listening to you this morning, Connor. Uh, that may sway some people in the right direction. But we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us. Connor Faulkner, Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Morning, Michael. Happy Monday. <laughs> As always. As always, Indeed, yeah. yeah. Uh, mm. Very busy this morning on the phones with lots of calls and texts coming in. Um, we had Anne in contact with us in relation to your opener piece with Pazer Tobin and um, she wants to know if we can get rid of some of the old political parties please before we start making new ones Okay. Um, mm-hmm. she says at this rate we'll have so many parties with so many differing stances on, on the key issues that, that they'll never actually get it and done because it, it'll be impossible for them to reach a majority on any issue so either way it's going to mm. take longer to get anything done and we don't need to be doing that <laughs> Okay. and um, mm. we had uh, Noel in contact as well on the same issue um, he said he's not critical at all of Pazer Tobin for deciding to leave Sinn Féin but he's curious to know one thing um, that Sinn Féin had a policy whereby their TDs and their senators would only get paid the average industrial wage and mm, he's, mm. he's keen to know if Pather is going to carry this forward into his mm, own political yeah. movement. Well that's a, an interesting question. It's always been an interesting question not just this morning but in terms of how that works in practice when you consider that uh, they talk uh, in gross figures rather than in net, net figures, figures and yeah. don't include expenses and that sort of thing and uh, it is a, a Sinn Féin policy but uh, one uh, that uh, I'm not sure uh, a lot of people are necessarily happy with in that it goes back to Sinn Féin anyway. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm. And on the same subject, we had Gary um, in contact with us with his tongue very firmly in his cheek when he said, oh great, another new political party, just what we need. I hope that they'll be able to shake up the Irish political landscape in the same way that Renua did. Mm. Yeah, well, I don't think Renua has quite achieved that yet, uh, but uh, it's uh, the shaking up of the political landscape that Patrick Tobin says he hopes to achieve, uh, that there's a group think uh, amongst uh, the existing parties at the moment. This is it. And on the same issue again, as I said, lots of, lots of reaction to Father's opening piece with us. Mm. Um, Martin was um, in touch to say that we don't need any more political parties or movements. What we need is for the people who are already elected and who are already in government um, to step up and do their jobs properly and represent the people who put their faith in them in the first place when they were casting their vote. Okay, good stuff. We'll uh, see if that happens uh, maybe in a lifetime or two. But let's talk about some good news uh, this week. And Dempsey who's the communications manager and training facilitator, facilitator 
commentator, I beg your pardon, with Third Age joins us now uh, because uh, there's a, a Christmas bonus for everybody this week and uh, all social welfare recipients, uh, people who are on the dole get a two weeks dole, a double pension payment for that matter. One for everyone in the audience, Michael. It Absolutely. is good news, isn't yes. it? Yeah. The um, the um, Christmas bonus, as you know, I think it was dropped around 2009, a huge outcry. Mm. And then it began coming back incrementally. And this year from today, people could go in and get their extra week's payment. And it's the very, first very time welcome. since it was dropped that it, it's a, a double week. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and the timing of it, uh, I suppose... Uh, important as well because it's a chance to get the shopping done. I think the timing is thoughtful because, you know, giving it too near Christmas like it was again to be very welcome. But this is the time when people are beginning to do their shopping. And again, if I'm speaking for older people, you know, a lot of people came on Senior Line or National Health Line when it all began to go and talk about like, you know, I get my little something Mm. for my grandchildren and I get a little something every week and I all this. So it really did interfere with people's plans and their dreams and their hopes really for, for Christmas. So it's it's very, very welcome. I just want to say one wider thing, Michael, which mm. I think is very, very important. Um, we are spokespeople for older people, and that's very, very, we're very happy to be doing that. But I happen to be listening over the weekend to all the other areas of need around this time. I was listening to a woman who's in a hotel with her four children, and the children saying, where will we be for Christmas, and how will Santa find us? And, like, it would rend your heart, you know? And I listened to another item on moneylenders at Christmas, and this woman, she has teenagers, and again, she was talking about the calls in her purse at Christmas, and her teenagers well, one of them, it wasn't even, you know, Christmas, it was he needed glasses. So I just feel it's important for us to say that while we represent a section of the community that aren't that verbal, we are very, very aware of the other needs of the community. Absolutely. And it's hard to believe uh, that we would license a financial... Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Anabotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or 
or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Financial institution to charge an interest rate of 49%. Exactly. Exactly, you know, okay. they, well, they, they, you know, and uh, this woman, I mean, we can judge people for going to money lenders because it's a dreadful rate of interest. But she explained very simply her situation and her situation. She was a former um, credit union client, but sadly, some years ago, she didn't do very well with them. So she can't go back. To them. So you're left with very few options. Mm. Yeah. I, I mm. take it that the mild weather we've been experiencing uh, this year so far it really has been very mild, hasn't it? Uh, it has. In comparison yes, to other the weekend was beautiful yeah. and uh, so we're going to talk about fuel allowance we, again mm. we've probably been going light on it and the fuel allowance news is very very good as Michael as you know mm. I mean we've had the um, it's been back from the uh, 1st of October fuel allowance for, for those who qualified it's, it's means tested as we know mm. and in the past you were getting 22.50 a week for 27 weeks which is seeing you you know through the winter to some extent and that's been extended now this year to 20 eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Which so, is um, good again, news in itself, uh, but it's potluck to a, a large degree, isn't it? I, yeah. I mean, quite yeah. often we hear from people in April, let's say, or September, yeah. and it's freezing cold. Uh, Very and, much so. Very know, much so. I was just looking at the long-range weather forecast, Michael, and mm. I, from Met Aaron, and again, you can't say this is biblical and going to happen, but yeah. um, they're saying that... Um, the worst news is that it will be, it could be as bad. Of course, we can get very apocryphal about this. But it could <laughs> be as so, bad yeah. As, yeah. as the dreadful winter of 2010, which itself was, was we hadn't as bad, yeah. had as bad since 1910. Mm. But I mean, you can say all those things and strike terror into people. And, and you know, you, you don't know until no, you're... It's not that long ago. I'd imagine most people listening to us remember the heavy falls of snow and that sort of thing. And yeah. uh, no matter how long you had the heat on or how high it was, it was next to impossible to heat the house. Very much so. And again, talking about older people, um, you know, about, uh, you know, uh, as distinct from other sections of the community, older people maybe can't get out safely. Mm. You're in the house, very, very p- bad for your uh, health and well-being. We're in uh, Senior Line, we're beginning a whole Facebook, Facebook series called Be Winter Ready. And we're going to do some tips every week. We began it uh, this last week. And it was be, be, be warm, keep warm this winter. And we mm. talked about all these things that we know, but sometimes it's good to remind people, you know, get out if you can safely, have hot drinks, move around the house if you can't get out, you know, get someone to take in your fuel if you can't take it in yourself. All 
kind of ordinary things, but bringing them all together in a package, not just for older people, but mm. for their family members and neighbours who, who might read it and say, look, that's a good idea. I'll pop in and see how so-and-so is. Okay, well, if uh, the uh, apocalyptical forecast <laughs> proves correct, perhaps it'll be great for little children hoping for a white Christmas. Yeah. Perhaps it'll be impossible to heat the house. If that is Hopefully the case uh, in the north, uh, they may qualify for a cold weather payment. Uh, apparently, this is if there's seven consecutive days where it's zero degrees or less, or if that's the forecast. Uh, uh, and Sinn Féin wants uh, that to be introduced in the south. Uh, what do you think of that proposal? Yeah. Again, it's, it's, it's a good proposal. Um, I suppose, again, I, I don't know if they've cost it or not. And I just think if logistically for seven days below zero or not, you can, again, kind of a logistical nightmare maybe to, uh, to implement. Mm. Uh, if so, it would, it would be giving people who qualified 45 euro extra a week, which mm. would be, uh, which would be very, very good. Okay. No, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a good idea. It's part of their whole, um, it's part of a larger document of the whole area of climate and looking after people. I suppose there's one thing if I have time I'd like to say, Michael, and again, I think you and I might have been talking about this or adverting to this briefly. Um, Third Age and Senior Line is part of a, a 25 um, NGOs in the aid sector who've been asking about the whole area of home care, home care packages, helping to keep people safe at home so as to dev- avoid the winter trolley crisis. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very linked to what we've just been talking about because there are currently um, 6,200 6, people on the waiting list for home care packages of home help, all of that to help them keep safely at home. Now, the government is promising 550 packages to come in before Christmas so that people who are currently in hospital and can't get home could get home and that it, it would be great if that happened but there's a whole link I mean warmth and all of that is excellent but you need home care as well you need social care it, 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 it isn't good enough if you're warm or mm. a bit warm but you've nobody coming into you from Friday to Monday so you have to stay in bed all day you all know right. and we'll so, just remind people as well that there is somebody they can talk to on the senior line and that's one eight hundred eighty forty five ninety one. 1-800-80-45-91. Those lines are open from 10 in the morning till 10 in the evening every day of the week. We have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Anne Dempsey is uh, the Communications Manager and Training Facilitator with Third Age. Now, let's go back to you and some more of the thoughts that you've been sharing with us. Maggie, you have more comments there. Yeah, we had Anne in contact with us this morning on the show in relation to your piece with Connor and the drink driving survey. She was, I have to say, just chatting to her in the phone. She was really shocked at the findings of the survey. I know that, you know, you focused on the positive at the beginning of it, but I mean, I think the figure of one in eight kind of would stick in anybody's mm-hmm. mind when you hear about it. And she said she can't believe that there are that many people that are still willing to get behind the wheel while over the drinking limit. She wants mm-hmm. to know how many people have to die before the message really hits home. Yeah. And on, on the same note, Tony was saying that he doesn't believe that any amount of safety campaigns are ever going to stop people from taking that risk and getting behind the wheel. Um, he says that these sort of people don't think that they'll ever be caught and unfortunately that is the case for some of them. Mm. He thinks that if you're caught driving with drink in your system then you should immediately be slapped with a lifetime ban. Okay, well it's an automatic disqualification mm. for three months uh, yeah. for the very lowest of limits uh, it seems at the moment. Well, uh, but, I think uh, Tony yeah, is, is of the opinion that that's not, mm, not, not effective, enough, yeah. it's not enough mm. of a deterrent and that's okay. why it needs to be made tougher. Okay, yeah. alright. I'll come back into you later, I have a all few right. left over but time is 
is against us. It is indeed. All right, thanks Maggie and thanks to everybody who has been in touch. If you would like to add to what's been said, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715958. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now we'll uh, talk uh, about how Louth County Council has uh, adopted a budget uh, for next year. Paul Bell, Labour Councillor and Anne Campbell, Sinn Féin Councillor join us uh, to tell us a a little bit more. Obviously this wasn't straightforward and it was on uh, the third uh, attempt. It it didn't go through it seems uh, without uh, some heated discussion Paul Bell. Uh, Yes Michael, good morning. Well what we've finally ended up with is a a budget but a very much divided council Mm. Uh, and some of those reasons relate to the information that we were given by the financial department of the council uh, the quality of the information uh, the understanding of what input we could have into discretionary spend uh, as councillors as elected members uh, and indeed uh, then we you know when we were trying to action some of those mm. cuts or amendments to the budget we were confronted by being told well actually you can't do that because it wasn't a balanced budget it was well, not only was it not a balanced budget, Michael, there was issues where, you know, a document's produced telling you what discretionary spend is, and then when you go to actually decide, look, maybe not as much money is required there as you suggest, mm. then you're told all these reasons by the executive, well, that must stay there. So, where we felt that we had very little input into the actual budget construction, mm. uh, what we find then is when we go to action, what we understand is within our remit uh, as elected members, uh, then we can't action that to the benefit of the citizens. Mm. It's always going to be difficult, Michael. Budgets are under pressure. So, so, you know, so and they're so, always under pressure in relation to receiving government funding. And but but, but the, 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 the vote under protest, if you like, was in favour of a, a budget. You were told that that was not a, a balanced budget. And yes. It was given back to you and you had to vote it again mm-hmm. and you've voted for what the executive finds acceptable. Uh, the the budget was was adopted. Yes, mm, yeah. I just want to make quite clear I did not vote for that budget. Mm, but, but as yeah, a just, ca- just but as a matter of record, sure. Yeah, that, I, think, I, I think the the, the uh, vote was fourteen fourteen. Uh, yes, down uh, to the casting yeah. vote of the Kehillock. But uh, as a council, it was adopted. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and yeah, I yeah, accept yeah, the, yeah. the democratic decision of council, mm. obviously, yeah. and we have to work with the result of that. Mm. And listen, uh, just before I come to Anne Campbell, I, I think people will be saying, "What? What does he mean by a discretionary budget? This is money that's floating, if you like, that the council has." Mm. At its disposal to use, at its discretion if something comes up or if they think that's worthwhile during the year. It's not necessarily planned for at the beginning of the year, but something like the Rose Garden down in Dominic's Park comes up. Mm. Uh, and we were discussing this on Friday with your colleague, Pio Smith, who yes. said uh, it cost €35,000. We were just flabbergasted mm-hmm. by this to the degree that we asked Loud County Council to confirm if that was the figure. They've said it's actually €19,000 that they spent on mm-hmm. it. Uh, but they didn't tell us how they spent €19,000 on it. Uh, I mean, it certainly couldn't have cost any more okay. than 5000 or 2000 Now, we've asked the council to give us a, a breakdown of yes. the cost, and I'm sure that in due course that will happen. Well, therein lies the problem. Um, as councillors, and, and I'm sure uh, yeah. Councillor Campbell will, will share this view, we understand that discretionary spending at the beginning of year and budget, mm. uh, that certain adjustments can be made to that area of spending. But as Councillor Smith has made very, very much the, the point. Once the budget is adopted, there's no understanding of how that budget is spent, how the direction is given, and uh, what process is used. It doesn't matter if it's a rose garden mm. or it's a, a traffic sign. Yeah. We just don't or, base or it Or a handrail at the Tulsa. Okay, so 
just to make the point, uh, one figure is 19,000, one figure is mm. 35,000. Just to look at it, I mean, I objected yesterday to the restoration of a fee for all-day car parking in Drogheda. Mm. And one of the reasons that is, is because while you're talking about discretionary spending being spent in the manner you Mm. articulate, Mm. the raising of the money for now all-day parking is actually €50,000. So how many rose gardens is that? Oh, not, not, not very so, money. The so, way that County so, Council so spends money, willy nilly, is the phrase that comes to mind. The everyday citizen will say, "Well, how does that actually work?" Uh, and the problem is, as an elected representative, I'm not quite clear myself. You don't know. Uh, yeah. And Campbell, do you know? No, Michael. There's no point in me saying that. That I know. I've, I've been on the council for 15 months, and I have found I, I was there last year for the budget and I was there um, this year for the budget and uh, I found it a very um, mm. fraught and complex um, process. Yeah, uh, the flow of information, I mean, we've heard several councillors over the course of the last week uh, telling us uh, that the executive seems to have a, a view that uh, it's information on a need-to-know basis and you don't need to know. And that's the the heart of the problem, like Councillor Bell said, it's there's a lot of information that is given to us in the budget documents, um, and it's um, very complex. And there's a lot of codes around different headings and and everything. And for for people to try and and work it out, even um, councillors with a lot more experience than me find it very difficult. The process actually starts. Um, in, in June every year, Michael, when um, councillors and council groupings like Sinn Féin are asked to make submissions to the mm. um, budget budgetary process before the final figures are um, compiled. And um, we, as a Sinn Féin uh, grouping on the council, we made a joint submission. Um, or we, put, we got together ourselves and, and met and, and came up with the document and we put a document which was quite detailed before the um, executive um, mm-hmm. in June and um, we had a pre-budget meeting um, later on in the summertime and um, where some of those matters were um, discussed and were just rejected out of hand and um, we didn't get any formal response to some questions that were um, raised in the budget document which were raised again last night by a couple of uh, councillors from Sinn Féin and by other parties as well and um, that's why there was a, a recess um, there were a couple of recesses during the meeting yesterday for um, officials to go and get the information, which in fairness, from our point of view, had already been asked in the budget document submitted and, in June. And do you know what the discretionary spend is for next year? This is this money that's floating that at some stage in the year, the council might decide, oh, we'll spend money on that and we take it from that fund, like the Rose Garden or whatever. But do you know how much is in this discretionary fund? Well, it it obviously changes um, year to year, depending on what the. But do you um, know how much there is for next year? Well, we we got it. We got a document. Um, we got a document, Michael, um, that shows us that there was um, there's a whole raft of different things. So mm. if you look, just just taking one of the things that was actually cut um, um, in the um, finalised budget yesterday was um, town uh, town twinning. Um, which was five thousand euro that had been allocated by the executive for town twin, and that's been cut. Um, and there's a lot of stuff yeah. around festivals and. But you, 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 you don't know how much they actually have floating, like. No. Do you, Paul Bell? Yes. Well, my understanding is that what we have uh, is a right to deal with discretionary spend, which is about two percent of the budget, mm. which is one hundred and six 
million or so. That's um, right. sorry. Mm-hmm. That's my understanding of what we have a right to actually look at. Mm. But as, as but uh, quite often the council will decide how to spend. Well, it. as Anne is saying, mm. there it's when you go to actually start to make adjustments. Mm. Sometimes you find resistance to that by the executive, uh, and sometimes you find that there are in, inhibitors mm. in trying to do that. In other words. For one example, yesterday I tried to basically move money that I understood wasn't used in this year mm. uh, in an area of um, piers and harbours where €174,000 was budgeted for. Uh, only €56,000 was used of that. And I requested that some of that money be reduced to pass it on mm. to other areas of the budget, which would be much more beneficial to the citizens. And the response to that question was, well, we're waiting for match funding from the state to do certain things, mm. but it wasn't done this year. Well, I said, well, basically, if it's not being used, why don't we try and reallocate that money <clears throat> to areas mm. where our citizens may get a greater benefit? Understanding, Michael, of course, that the budget is tight mm. and it is understandable. Okay, but you know? I, I suppose there's an argument on both sides of that yeah. issue because the council is saying the money they have could be doubled because it'd be matched by but, state but, funding. But be very clear, but, Michael. Yeah, that yeah, bu- mm, we were mm. asked to, to adopt that budget last year. The other point I, I'd like to make, if I could, last year councillors adopted a budget. I adopted a budget on a, on a particular mm. reason. One is I wanted to see communities taken care of who are suffering antisocial behaviour. None of that money materialised during the year of 2018. Mm. And there's no apology for it. There's no explanation for it. Mm. And that's why I've lost confidence in the, in, the, in the actual budgetary process. And the council sitting on some amount of money, mm-hmm. uh, unspent, uh, people without heating uh, and other problems yes. in their homes. Uh, and it's on a need-to-know basis if you write, ask the right questions. This is one of the things that we were told by councillors last week. Yes. Now, you asked how much was spent on the FLA. yes. And you weren't told exactly, were you? No, we weren't. You weren't given a breakdown of no, how No, absolutely it was spent. not. And there's a, again, there's some resistance to that. Uh, some councils are quite reluctant to, you know, pursue these questions. They think that you know there'll be some degree of being unpopular mm. uh, if you ask questions which make people either uncomfortable mm. or if it's inconvenient. The, the request I've been making is, can you just break it down for me? How much money you so gave? So you know the, that there was value for uh, money. This, yeah. well, at the end of the day, this mm. is public information. Mm. Then the public can decide. Yeah. Now, the, if the figure we're given is it's in and around two hundred and fifty thousand euros. Well, to me, mm. look. What's either, that? Seventy thousand. You had a gift or two million. You, 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 and not, not only that, that's a grant mm. to the 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 the, the Flarkeol committee. Mm. But at the end of the day, other resources were provided by council. You had to just look at the street cleaning mm. services, management services. Mm. And the only reason I was raising those questions is that I couldn't see it in the actual budget. Mm. Uh, now, at the end of the day, everybody support, supports the flower coal. Mm. But here's the, here's the issue. You rightly said, I'm waiting for people right now who are unsure if they're going to have central heating for Christmas. Mm. That's a basic requirement. Let me just bring Anne Campbell in because she's been very patient on the phone uh, as well, I think. And Anne, I was talking about this uh, or or something similar to this with Declan Brannock earlier on because uh, there's a question of value for money. And as an example, that conversation uh, was about people moving into council houses, into social housing units after somebody else. Uh, And nobody wants them moving into a house that needs to be painted. But do you need to paint a house that doesn't need painting? Well, I, I heard that, uh, and I heard Deputy Brannock on, and the, I think the, uh, this is something that I had, had raised with uh, Lyles County Council through a number of questions about value for money. 
Um, they have to do work. They're statutorily obliged to do work to, at houses to a certain standard, the highest standard that they, they can do it. Um, the problem is that there there's another cut in the maintenance budget for, for next year, That even from the one that was there, um, that ran for ran out in June this year, um, and there's not there's not going to be enough money. There, I mean, there's no doubt. I don't think Councillor Bell will disagree with me. There is no there isn't enough money for for maintenance allocated in the budget um, for 2019 because it, there's a cut on the original number that we had um, for 2018 um, that ran out in June. Okay. What about parking charges? Parking charges in um, Dundalk are going up 10% and um, that was something that um, I had not wanted to see with um, Brexit happening in three months time, four months time mm. You're obviously very disappointed by that then are you? Uh, yeah I'm, I, I am disappointed um, by that but I'm, I'm also disappointed Michael with the whole, with the whole process um, and the lack of engagement um, mm. with councillors by the executive over a, a number of months like I say this is I know the meetings have happened in the last three weeks, the actual budget meetings have happened in the last three weeks, but the process started as far back mm-hmm. in, in time as June of this year, and the level of engagement has been very disappointing. It's a different story in Drogheda, Paul Bell, and uh, the parking charges have been reduced by 10 cents. You had warned uh, that in such a scenario this could end free parking, and that's exactly what's happened. Well, Michael, I resisted, as did my colleague Councillor Smith, the understanding of interfering mm. with a funding stream where car parking was €1.20 per hour and free car park p- parking provided for commuters and for walkers. And I appealed to the councils at the time not to interfere with that funding stream. And everything that was predicted has actually happened. Now what we have is we have a €1 Euro all-day parking charge and people may say, oh, that's a very small charge, but it's another charge. We also had then, and I did stand by colleagues who voted for the right to have you know, where the municipal council voted for the right to have a one euro charge per hour. I tried to support them in the sense of that they had voted that democratically. But at the end of the day, every single thing that I predicted would happen has happened. We also tried to raise money through car parking for our local council. Councils rejected that locally. And now what we have is a charge enforced on the people of Drogheda. Uh, and unfortunately enforced by people who decided, listen... Uh, people in Drogheda shouldn't have this facility but at the end of the day the people in Drogheda were always paying a higher car parking fee per hour and that's why I'm saying Michael it's a divided council now All right, and we'll leave it on that note and thank you both for joining us uh, this morning Labour's Paul Bell and Sinn Féin's Anne Campbell Michael Reed on LMFM. The front page headline of the Irish Independent today is The Great Divide. On one hand, it talks about a spending splurge. Consumers set for record Christmas spree while mortgage approvals rise. That spending spree over the Christmas period is said to be on average 2,690 per Irish household. On the other side, it says poverty grows, desperate families turning to St. Vincent de Paul as 11,000 unable to find homes. And that aspect of it refers to a report which has been published today by Social Justice Ireland, its national social monitor for the winter. And it highlights uh, the 11,000 
people who are homeless, 700,000 on healthcare waiting lists and 500,000 homes without broadband in this country as a result, Social Justice Ireland says, of government policy failing. Now we're joined by Sean Healy who's uh, the Director of Social Justice and a very good morning to you Sean and thanks for joining us uh, to a, a large degree uh, I suppose their problems uh, that we've become accustomed to in this country. And that's part of the problem that in actual fact we'll normalise this and we'll think there's no problem with having two quarters of a million people in poverty and 700,000 on waiting lists uh, and and those other numbers that you read out there. And I think that that's a a situation that we must guard against. Uh, The reality is that there is a great divide in Ireland and on the one side you get people able to spend thousands uh, on celebrating Christmas and on the other side you have people who don't have the basic uh, in resources or the basic services, basic infrastructure to live life with dignity. On the one hand, you have people who can spend uh, fortunes of money on buying gifts for friends and for their families and so on. That's lovely. That's great. Mm -hmm. They have the resources to do it. But what about the people who are living in poverty whose income is below the poverty line, doesn't give them enough uh, to sort of provide the essentials to live life with dignity. They're living in housing or they're maybe waiting for housing. They're on those waiting lists where there's there's over about a there's over 100,000 people now, or a household, sorry, over 100,000 households uh, waiting uh, for houses of one kind or another. And we have 10,000 people, 11,000 people homeless. Uh, we have a quarter of a million children living in poverty. So Christmas for them and this, this time of year is a very difficult one. They certainly don't have €2,700 mm. uh, to be spending on Christmas. Right, and we were talking about the latest homeless figures, the official figures, uh, which put it under 10,000. I'm not sure that there's anything to be happy about with the official figures, but they fall uh, way below what people estimate to be the real, real figure. But, but what uh, people are uh, experiencing in that situation uh, is very different than what the rest of us are experiencing. And uh, when we were speaking about it last week, I was saying it's all the more striking with uh, a couple of weeks uh, to go to Christmas time and to think about the type of day that those people will have on Christmas Day. Just the Christmas dinner, for example, something that I suppose most of us take for granted as much as we enjoy it, but you'd expect to be sitting down at the family table for a Christmas dinner, and that's just not possible for so many people. That's absolutely true. And I think uh, the situation is going to kind continue. And it's not going to resolve itself. The idea that in some way or other, if we get the economy right, if we grow the economy, and we have one of the fastest growing economies in the world, and that's very good. Uh, and uh, in some way, that, that there's a feeling at a policymaking level, particularly a government level, that if they get the economy right, everything else follows. And that simply is not true. The, the benefits do not trickle down to large numbers of people. Some people benefit very well, and that's very good. Uh, But even when we get uh, employment up, as we have done, and that's very welcome as well, but we still have to face up to the fact that over 100,000 people with jobs actually living in poverty. And do you think that it's intentional or unintentional? I mean, the intention to make the rich richer, uh, as you say, we're told the idea is that it trickles down. uh, But do you think that the idea is perhaps just make the rich richer? Well, I, I don't really think that that's that there's a, a politician setting out just to make the rich richer in Ireland. What I think is happening, and the thing that I would point to very strongly, is that they are dealing with symptoms of, of problems and not dealing with the causes of the problems all over the place. So there's huge causes, there's huge obvious causes. Uh, for example, take the waiting lists. 
uh, and, and uh, not so much the waiting list, but the trolleys, okay? Mm. Uh, people are going into accident and emergency. That will continue and it will get worse until you put the primary care networks into place and make them the cornerstone of your healthcare system. Mm. Now, people, the Slyantic Care Report said that's what should be done. This is something we've been advocating for the best part of 20 years. And yet, you're st- we're still looking at a situation where it's not being done. Uh, th- there's, there's been developments and good developments mm. on the primary care, uh, in the primary care space. Fair enough, but you have to pay for it. Left. You have to pay for it. And where do you get the money? Agreed. And if you take that money off some people, will those people still vote for you? Well, you see, I, th- I think uh, like we are in, in a, our view of the, the, the tax system is that uh, the, the solution to getting extra money is not increasing income tax. Uh, we're talking about a fairer tax system with a broader tax base. And you, in fact, you could make an argument uh, for reducing income tax in that mm. because of the fact that we, by, by international standards, people enter the top rate of tax at a very low level. But the bottom line is that our total tax take, when you put all our taxes together, is very low. And part of that has to do with the corporate sector, mm-hmm. which has a very low rate, well, no, no official rate of 12.5%. But some of the really biggest players in the tax, in the corporate tax field, pay only 2%. Mm. So, and, and in some cases may even pay no tax, uh, which is an issue that I think uh, people are beginning to be more suspicious about that that actually may be the case. Mm. Certainly they're not paying what we would call uh, what we would argue for as a minimum effective corporate tax rate that every corporation would have to pay at least 6% of their profits. Remember we're not talking about uh, companies having to pay taxes they are not making a profit. They're, is unlike the PAYE worker who pays a tax on every penny mm. from the start and then just gets the tax credit that they're entitled to deduct it. Uh, corporations are different. They actually pay tax only but, uh, on their profits. Uh, that, that, that's by policy, and a, a lot of people Absolutely. support a lot of people support that policy. And I, I support it too, but the issue is that I think they should pay six percent minimum out of that, and that would have a have a twelve and a half percent rate if it's so if it's that's so important. At the end of the day, I think that should probably go up, but there doesn't seem to be any any willingness at all at, at a policy level uh, for government to look at that. But if that's the case, fine. But let's take uh, at least take a minimum of six percent uh, from every. Uh, out of the profits, and that means they get to keep ninety four percent. I don't think that's a bad deal by anybody's standards. Mm, but, but they, they might. Well, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't. I don't actually think yeah. they would. You well, know, they I, might. I, I, uh, they I, might because they might get a better deal elsewhere. Well, and this is. Uh, but the there's another side to it. Mm. You see, like we're we're mm. now the only the, the main English speaking country as as Britain leaves. If the looks like they're going to one way or another leave with Brexit, so we're going to be the main English speaking country in the world, and a lot of these countries that are coming in are interested in coming here because of the English language and so on. But there's, an, there's another side to this, though, that we need to take a closer look at. Uh, I was in Cork uh, a little while ago. I know it's the other end of the country now from Mead, Louds and Mead and so on. But at the same time, the type of thing that I just came across there happens in, in LMFM territory as well. And it's this. Um, Apple are down there. They've just... Uh, made a commitment to have 2,000 new jobs there, uh, which is very welcome and everybody's very happy and that's the government's policy of trying to increase those jobs. Mm. Now, look at what happens though. Um, the 1,000 of those jobs will go to people from Ireland, mm. but because of the fact that we're down to 5.5% um, unemployment levels now and we don't have people with the skills that uh, Apple will require, 1,000 of those jobs are going to go to people coming in from abroad. Mm. Now, 
they are going to require accommodation in a city that has serious accommodation problems, not maybe as bad as the greater Dublin area, but certainly serious problems. They are going to need not just accommodation, but health care, education, public transport, and so on. Okay, And the point of the issue is that we seem to be developing policy in a completely disjointed way. And that that will impoverish the existing population. Absolutely, because in effect what will happen is if they, if they go in, in a situation where there's already overcrowding and accommodation and where there's ever already quite a level of homelessness uh, and, and basically all caused by the fact that there isn't enough accommodation, that the supply of housing is not keeping pace with demand, you add another thousand foreigners into uh, that particular mix, they're going to get, if they get housing and they get accommodation, that means there's a thousand others displaced. And we're on the other side. The housing, uh, the housing policy that government has, even if we're fully, all their targets were met, and they're not being met. But even if they were, they're only halfway to this to solving the current problem, not taking anything aboard of the the growing problem that's going to be happening in the next five years. Okay. Food for thought. We have to leave it there though because we're over time and thank you indeed for your time and for joining us as always. Sean Haley, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now the front page headline of today's Irish Daily Mirror is truly disturbing. Sex crime scandal perverts on the prowl. Vast majority of offenders freed from jail without therapy. Pat Flanagan, senior reporter and columnist with uh, the Irish Daily Mirror, has uh, this story and joins us on the line. And good morning to you and thanks for joining us. And this relates uh, to how just 12% of sex offenders who have been released from prison have undergone special counselling therapy courses. Yeah, I think the people would probably be rightly shocked. I I think I I was shocked um, because uh, the vast majority of of, uh, those who who are jailed for sex offences uh, uh, not not availing of the treatment available. So actually, you know, there's, there's no way of, of making them. It's it's a voluntary, it's voluntary service. But uh, they're coming by, uh, back onto the streets. Only twelve um, percent of them take it, and so they're coming back onto the streets without uh, having any treatment whatsoever. So the only thing um, that's changed is that they've been off the streets for a while, uh, but they've come out uh, in terms of their mind the same person that they went in. Absolutely, uh, and the situation is getting worse. I mean, the the, uh, the then Justice Minister uh, Francis Fitzgerald in 2000, I think, and uh, I think it was 14, uh, told the doll there was about 21% of uh, convicted sex offenders were having treatment while inside. Mm. But uh, that figure has now just uh, dropped to about to about 12%. So uh, the situation is getting uh, deteriorating rapidly. And we're talking about 135 people, isn't it, uh, who have been released, meaning 17 of those. Yeah, just, just, seven, just 17 of the 135 had treatment. And as I said, there's no way you can make them. Um, and the problem, the problem is a lot of these... Uh, 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 prisoners uh, who, who refuse to take treatment don't believe they've committed a crime because mm. the, the, the percentage of, um, of repeat offences coming out is, 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 is probably the worst among all categories of crime. Well, I mean, if you take paedophiles, uh, people who've assaulted children, uh, they believe that that's perfectly normal. Uh, they would see it as a, a sexual orientation that there's heterosexuals, homosexuals and paedophiles. So they really yeah. believe there's nothing wrong. 
Well, that's that is the problem, and that is one of the one of the main reasons why they refuse to take treatment because they don't see that they don't believe they've actually done anything wrong. So they why why would they take treatment? Mm. I mean, the the, the sentences sentences in this country are very lean as it is. Uh, it was a case in point uh, today. There's, a, there's a, another story in one of the papers about a 50 year old man who assaulted, a, sexually assaulted a, a young girl in a mosque, and he, he was out in prison after four days. Mm. So I mean, how, I mean, treatment he wouldn't even apply in that case. So mm. I mean, what, what the mirror editorial today suggests that maybe longer sentences could be given to to, to sex offenders with the proviso that. Uh, Yeah, well, it's not that they're refusing the treatment, as I understand it. It's just that they're not volunteering for it. As I said, there's no, there's no mm. really way you, yeah. you can actually make them. It's not compulsory. Yeah. But, 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 but if you insist that they spend longer in prison, and I think this is the argument about making it mandatory, well, then uh, they'll just do it and they'll sit through the course, but yeah. it, it won't make any difference. That The only way, I think the uh, people who provide these type of counselling services, the only way that they can be effective, they say, is by people volunteering to take part themselves. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. That, that's the impasse now. I don't know what you could mm. do with that. But the only other thing is that we'd keep them off the streets longer if they didn't. I mean, if they, if yeah. they refused, they would serve a longer sentence. They, they, it would be an incentive to take the to take the treatment. I mean, if they could get out earlier. Mm. Or castrate them. Well, <laughs> well that's, that's, another, that's another story. It is a, another story, isn't it? Uh, and uh, then when they come out, uh, we don't know who they are, where they are, or what they're doing. This is a, another conversation. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, the Mirror campaign yeah. was for some kind of Megan's law or Sarah's law over the years, but it's, uh, it's fallen on deaf ears. I mean, only in the door last week, they were, they were, they were making excuses why it couldn't possibly work. Uh, it would lead to vigilanteism. Mm. But I mean, it seems to be it seems to be the sex offender that, that has all the rights rather than the, the, the parents and the children. But they, you're talking about people who've done their time, you know, uh, who've served their sentence uh, and have a, a right, I suppose, to uh, whatever degree uh, that may be, to live a, a free life rather than getting battered by their neighbours. Absolutely. Well, that, that's the other side. But, yeah, I mean, children must be protected. I mean, people, um, I mean, there's a good case. I mean, people who have committed sexual sexual offences, especially repeat offenders, they've, they've, they've forfeited their, their, their sort of the rights to anonymity, at least. I mean, if, if they continue to do this, they, I mean, they must pay a price for what they've done. Mm. And what does that mean? Publishing their name somewhere? Uh, well, in, in, in other jurisdictions, that's the, that's the case, especially in the United States. But uh, it just doesn't happen here. I mean, I know, I know, I understand that it's a human right. You know, mm. you've done your time. You, you did a crime. You did a time. Mm. But uh, see, that's an additional the, sentence, I suppose. That I mean, that's what you could argue. It's an additional sentence. You've got whatever time in prison, and then you have to live outside of prison with uh, the attitude towards you, uh, regardless of, of whether uh, you're sorry for the crime uh, or, or whatever it is. Uh, but you, you are always going to be seen as an offender and punished continuously because of it. Yeah, well, if, if people, I mean, if you refuse to take treatment in prison and then you come out and expect to be treated, you know, normally, I mean, the, 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 you have to look at the side of the victims as well. The victim's life has been destroyed as well. They have a, a, a life sentence. So, I mean, you, you have to weigh that up against, you know, the, the rights of a, a sex offender. Mm. And 
what about uh, vigilantes? If it did result in people taking the law into their own hands, uh, should there be something done to deter that from happening? Um, maybe there should be, but I mean, you've seen in recent cases, especially the the, the guy who kind of, the name escapes me at the moment, Marty. E. I mean, he would he would be still out there, uh, still online. Uh, <laughs> looking for young girls if he hadn't have been cornered by vigilantes. I mean, they do have a... They, they do, it does work sometimes. I know there's a, there could be a difficulty, you know, taking the law in his own hands, but uh, uh, I think parents, you know, given the choice, they, they would come down to the side of a vigilante. Mm. Uh, maybe it's the type of snare that uh, the Gardaí should involve themselves in, uh, this uh, idea of putting up profiles on the internet and seeing who uh, is looking uh, to make contact. Yeah, well, well, I would hope they are actually doing so. If not exactly snaring, they are monitoring. Or they say they are monitoring. But uh, I mean, the, 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 with the advent of the internet, it's it's much easier for, 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 for uh, sex offenders to you know, maintain, you know, anonymity. So it, it, it's, it's up to the Gardaí to mm. sort of counsel that with, with, with similar tactics. Mm. Uh, and what about the idea, because I think it's one of the issues uh, that uh, the Justice Committee has been looking at uh, as well as to whether they should be uh, allowed to live near schools or areas where young people gather. Absolutely not. I mean... It, in the country at the moment, there's no actual sex sex offenders register. I mean, they, 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 the guards, you know, where, know where they live, but nobody else does. And there's often, you know, there's often problems, you know, between the, the different state agencies as to as to you know where the sex offender is. So I, I, I think it should be made public. Absolutely, you know, mm-hmm. there should be some sort of register there where parents, guardians, or teachers can check if it's, if if a sex offender is living anywhere near a school. Okay, well, people can read your story in the mirror today, and we leave it there for the moment, Pat. And thanks. Uh, for joining us. Pat Flanagan, senior reporter and columnist with uh, the Irish Daily Mirror brings our programme to its conclusion today. Our time is running out and it's once again before we go. Thanks to Maggie McGuire and Ross Leahy for researching the programme today and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie 
any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.